there are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. G'day, g'day. My name is Tess Catherine Chapman. I'm talking to you today through the Climactic Collective, an online repository of all climate-related podcasts. I am also one half of upcoming climactic duo called Seasters with Cree McNamara. You can hear her podcast about her upcoming trip to COP25 on Climactic at the moment. During this podcast, I speak to Patrick Rose, a United Nations photographer. Today, we discuss his experience in the Solomon Islands where climate change and community are one and the same. This podcast delves further into climate issues as Patrick discusses his insight into gender roles, mining and media representation and doesn't hold his punches. Throughout this discussion, we frequently mention a young woman named Kathy. To put a face to the name, I highly recommend checking out Patrick Rose's Heartful Solo work beforehand. You can find the link on this page. Here with me today is humanitarian and photographer Patrick Rose. Patrick has worked in a broad range of countries with Fred Hollows, UNICEF, and last year spent 18 months with the UNDP. That is the United Nations Development Program and CISWAP, which is the Solomon Islands Water Sector Adaptation Program. For those who live in Brunswick East, Melbourne, you guys were lucky enough to host Patrick's emotive and insightful art exhibition called Heartful Solo in September this year. You can find links to Patrick's Heartful Solo and Before the Flood work in the links below. A quick homage to the small world we live in, although today I am recording from Brisbane and Patrick from Bangkok, we actually met around this time last year in Honiara, the capital city of the Solomons. So it's nice to speak to you again, Patrick. Great to speak with you, Tess. I noticed when I was looking through your Heart of Solo work, I was really drawn to Kathy from Santa Catalina. Could you please tell us about her story? Mm, Kathy is a really incredible woman. She's uh, already been displaced by, by climate change. She lives on this tiny little island at the very bottom of Makira called Santa Catalina. It's a beautiful community without any cars, without any sort of uh, industry. It's just a sort of community of, of subsistence farmers and, and, and fishermen. And Kathy has already, as I said, sort of experienced an extreme sort of storm and, and there was an earthquake. And so they had to move from her part of the island just because it was already so vulnerable to see level rise and, and extreme storms. So she's moved into a, her, a new place in, in the island, and she has was observing all these kind of rubbish going all around the island, all this kind of increased wrappers and cans and things like that, because people were starting to import more food and buy things from the mainland. Uh, and so what she did is she set up women's groups to kind of she divided it into wards and, and set it up 
as almost a, a kind of friendly competition uh, between which ward could keep their, their area the cleanest. And uh, it became a really, really sort of competitive process and, and a lot of fun for the women. They got together, cleaned up the, the rubbish, and then people would come and ask them what they're doing. Uh, and so she was this really uh, inspirational woman that I met when I was working with the UNDP. Uh, and that's what I was really doing uh, throughout the course of the year was going to each community and kind of asking who's already taking action on, on climate-related issues. Uh, and everywhere I went, everybody said, oh, you've got to meet Kathy, you've got to meet Joe, you've got to meet uh, Randy. Uh, and, you know, I think we all know that. Uh, anyone, if you were to turn up in any community in Australia, say who's really passionate about climate change, it's great that we can start to identify who these leaders are and then look to them for inspiration. And so that's what I was trying to do with this series of videos was to try to, you know, celebrate their efforts uh, and recognize that, yes, UNDP is coming in to sort of work on climate change adaptation, but we're not coming into a blank slate. We're not coming into an area that, that where people aren't already taking action. It's important to kind of identify these allies uh, and then bring them into the discussion. So that's really what, what Kathy was doing with uh, the Solomon Islands water sector adaptation, which was to, to sort of, you know, really make the case to the community about the importance of, of keeping the community clean so that you wouldn't have uh, mosquitoes and garbage and, and things kind of accumulating. So it's a kind of holistic way of looking at, at climate change adaptation rather than a, a really narrow focus just on sort of water infrastructure. Yeah, I love that competition to keep things clean. That's such a great insight. Would you mind talking a bit about the videos that you did make? I'm sure they'll look at the links, but just to give listeners an insight to those videos? Yeah, my assignment was really to sort of, you know, tell the story of what what this project is doing. Uh, and the project is this kind of, you know, I put it in, quote, in air quotes, uh, innovative climate adaptation project uh, that, that was working with the Global Environment Fund uh, to try to sort of prepare communities, vulnerable communities in the Solomon Islands for uh, climate change. So instead of just saying, oh, we're a water, or a water project um, and here's a bunch of water tanks, it's really starting to think about, okay, what's going to happen with climate change over the next 40, 50 years? And how do we start to put in place uh, systems that are going to be responsive to the needs? And again, it's not just all one size fits all. Oh, everyone needs more water tanks. Some people need more sort of like uh, weather systems so that they can identify when storms are coming so that they don't go out to sea because there's extreme storms coming. Or uh, some communities these may be needed uh, a better system of, of um, you know, water pumps to draw. They maybe have plenty of water. They don't need to harvest it. They just need to get water out of the ground more easily. So it's a customized solution in each community. Um, and so, you know, the my job was to, to sort of tell the stories of these, these uh, projects. But rather than tell the story of, oh, these water tanks or this uh, sort of weather system, I really tried to focus on the people and the communities. And so... I produced a series of videos of, of climate heroes. And so each community that I went to, I made a short video that sort of introduced you to this particular hero in the, in the community. And of course, because I have a long background with UNICEF, I also focused on a young person in the community, normally a teenager who was, um, you know, concerned about climate change and, and what their sort of response to it was. And so a mixture of, of these videos combined with uh, just in the process of making them, I ended up recording about 300 different songs with different choirs and string bands and uh, I ended up gathering all these different, um, you know, time lapses of the clouds and the sky and, and, you know, even some of the kind of resource extraction that's taking place. And so 
the the project became this kind of wonderful journey uh, for me and and I hope for the people who 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 watch the videos but not just looking at the people but looking at the landscape and then of course you know the outcomes become what UNDP could look at and and use for their sort of advocacy and public engagement processes uh, but I, I felt like with heart for solo uh, I wanted to share uh, the back catalog all the things that that maybe didn't fit into those kind of rigid boxes of of UN international advocacy especially with your video of Kathy talking about weather systems I found it very personalizing her talking about how when we say weather systems for her she's worried about her father going out into the canoe because he's a fisherman I thought that was very um, emotional. That's right. So, uh, yeah, there, there were two uh, people that I uh, profiled on Santa Catalina. Nelly is the woman who, who ran the kind of community groups. And Kathy, as you point out, is this really uh, wonderful young young uh, woman, who young girl who's, who's um, you know, very concerned. Her father had been out in the storm uh, only a couple of weeks before I arrived, and his, his boat had broken in half because it hit a rock, uh, and he had been drifting out in the sea for hours. Uh, and so you can imagine how vulnerable she felt as a, as a, as a, as a young girl that her father nearly drowned. Um, and, you know, yes, he's a very strong and seasoned fisherman, but uh, the, the, the reality of climate change is that more extreme storms, unpredictable weather, are catching people unaware. Uh, and so the seasons aren't corresponding to the traditional kind of custom knowledge where they might say, oh, well, in the month of March, uh, uh, when we see, you know, uh, the frigate bird will be, will be safe. Uh, well, those, those kinds of traditional knowledge that have kept them safe for so many generations aren't always working in the same way anymore. And so, you know, the reality of someone like Kathy, how vulnerable she would be as a family uh, if her father had drowned. Uh, and that's, you know, a, a case where I thank Thankfully, uh, he didn't drown. He made it back to safety after after a long uh, sort of time drifting in sea. Again, a sea filled with sharks and all kinds of different sort of uh, dangerous creatures. Um, but um, she she also had to deal with just that that uncertainty of there's lots of people in the community whose fathers don't come back. Uh, and so, you know, these are the kind of everyday impacts of climate change that I feel uh, aren't being sort of fully understood. Yeah, absolutely. Because of those storms and the location it's in, why do you think it's so important to study in the South Pacific and all the Solomon Islands specifically? The Solomon Islands is, you know, very close to uh, Australia and, and, you know, people who live in the northern part of Australia are certainly familiar with the, the intensity of those cyclones that we get uh, sort of in the, the, uh, the, the cyclone season. Solomon Islands experiences those, you know, with an even greater ferocity. If you look at the sort of trajectories of these uh, cyclones that come barreling uh, through the Western Pacific, it really really devastates them on a pretty regular basis. And so that becomes extremely difficult to build up infrastructure, extremely difficult to, to build your, your house, or, you know, if you're constantly, you know, trying to raise money to put a new roof on the church or on the school, uh, these things uh, are extremely draining uh, from a resource point of view, but a, you know, cultural community energy effort point of view. Uh, so I think it's really important to understand how climate change is going to impact these communities. Uh, and, you know, it's always surprising to me when I spend time in Australia, just how little 
Australians seem to know about the Solomon Islands as a neighboring country. It's often, you know, very, very vague at best, if not nothing at all. And so I feel like it's extraordinary to me that, that um, Australians can live without that knowledge of, of their neighbors, to live without a, a deep and abiding respect for this culture that has existed there for thousands of years. I mean, the Australians have been, in a, white Australia has been there for, for what, three or four or five generations. Uh, the Melanesians have been in the Solomon Islands for you know, 40, 50 generations uh, and have accumulated knowledge and culture and dance and music and language uh, that is now at threat because of climate change. And so I think any conversation about climate change in the Pacific needs to start with, uh, first of all, a recognition of, of these people who have um, been here for so long, uh, but also a deep respect and, and look to learn from how have they adapted, how have they learned to survive in, in these sort of cultural climactic conditions. Sometimes they've been harsh indeed. They've endured thousands of cyclones uh, throughout the course of the generations. I couldn't agree more and I've um, in Australia definitely had similar experiences with people asking me where the Solomon Islands are and especially because they are so intrinsically connected with nature for generations like you've said definitely could learn from them or should learn from them. Could you give an example of a one day in the life of this project? So say you've just arrived in a new province on a new island. What would you say day one looks like? It's a really complicated process. And I think this is where, you know, the UN maybe doesn't do a great job of telling the stories about what they're doing. We all like to think well, somebody somewhere is 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 working on climate adaptation. And certainly UNDP is doing that along with a lot of other, you know, really well-intentioned organizations. What was good about CSAP was that it, it was really designed uh, by Solomon Islanders uh, with a, a very sort of inclusive approach. And so, you know, I was really lucky to arrive towards the end and, and sort of have a lot of momentum in the project and sort of be part of the kind of rollout. Uh, but what happens in any kind of community is that we would arrive, uh, meet the chiefs and, and the kind of, you know, the elders in the community, and then arrange for a kind of community discussion. Uh, and those community discussions would often be really well attended. Three, four hundred people would turn up and we would have a projection onto the side of the church or onto the side of the school. Uh, and then those would be a kind of like a, a framework. Some Sometimes we would share the videos that I had made in other communities. So we would share Kathy's story or Nellie's story or, you know, different people from around the country who are already taking action on climate change. So it started to spark a conversation about, oh, yeah, that's happening to us, too. Oh, yeah, we have rubbish in our community. Oh, yeah, my father nearly got drowned at sea. Oh, yeah, we have long droughts. And so how do we cope with that? And so uh, those kinds of discussions then sort of prompted uh, the next day, which would be a, a, a really wonderful kind of dynamic process of breaking the, the community into three different groups. So instead of having just men and women, we created a, 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 a structure where there would be men, women, and youth. And so in order for anything to get a priority as a sort of like concern or as a sort of something that we need to seek a solution to, uh, there had to be a democratic sort of, sort of majority on that particular solution. And so, you know, the men couldn't just say, and this is a, a bit of a 
a problem within sort of Melanesian culture sometimes is that the men would sort of have the final say and then override the interests and concerns of the women and the youth. Uh, in this particular process, which we delicately and, and culturally sensitively carried out by Solomon Islanders with Solomon Islanders, uh, there would be this back and forth where the groups would identify their major concerns. Oh, yeah, we're worried about drought. Oh, yeah, we're worried about flooding. Oh, yeah, we're worried about sea level rise. And oh, yeah, we're worried about not having enough water. Then there would be this kind of sort of presentation. And only when there was two or more of those groups on board for a particular concern would that concern get elevated to something we would find a solution towards. And so it was a really interesting way of kind of circumventing what often happens with development projects. They say, oh yeah, we did the culturally sensitive thing. We sat with the chiefs and the chief says he needs uh, a new boat. <laughs> and so, uh, and so you know, often I've seen NGOs fall into that trap. They say, well, we went to the community and we talked to the chief and this is what the chief says he wants. Uh, and yeah, you know, the boat is probably useful it maybe helps them get different things but if you had asked the women if you had asked the young people they maybe wouldn't have put the same emphasis on that boat so it's not to say that the need for the boat is is invalid it's just to say let's look at other perspectives and so I don't want to get into too much detail, but basically that would be the framework, right? So we would have these youth and, and women's and men's groups and then map out, okay, the major concern that's coming through here is water storage because everyone's saying that they have to go two kilometers to get to the well and the well is no longer good. So let's actually think about how do we change that and how do we forecast, okay, we're going to have longer periods of drought, so we need to increase, you know, then there would be engineers who would say, with this many people, this many liters of water per day, uh, we're going to need this much water storage so then it becomes a kind of engineering solution which is which is excellent and you need that kind of technical expertise but that technical expertise without the cultural sensitivity without that consultation it really sort of leaves the project in a bad space and and as i said i've seen dozens of of well-intentioned climate projects or development projects throughout the Pacific, but throughout the world, where, you know, that technical solution comes before the other parts, right? So they just say, well, we're, we're putting in pumps. This is a simple thing. We just need to put the pump in. Uh, it's not as simple as that, especially in a place like the Pacific, where uh, it starts to sort of destabilize maybe a, an existing social harmony, where people get jealous because the pump is closer to Janet's house versus Wendy's house, you know? So, um, that becomes all uh, part of the discussion and has to be addressed right from the beginning with community involvement. It's fantastic how community focused this project has been. I have to ask, uh, acknowledging gender roles as a part of climate change, when you talked to the women, were they at all hesitant to speak up at first? Or I was really lucky to work with a, a team of uh, so many incredible Solomon Island women. Um, my, my, the leader of the project was a woman, Gloria Solia, uh, and you know uh, my, my colleague Joy and Ruth. They really sort of put women at ease. And in fact, it was an extraordinary sort of moment. I can remember on the island of Kwai and Malaysia of, you know, um, you know, these communities are used to sort of delegations coming through from, you know, different ministries and different things. Occasionally people come through and, and normally, well, invariably, it's men. Uh, and what was amazing was this was a team of, you know, we probably had 15 people on our team, all these engineers and experts and me and, you know, and what was the, the community almost kind of gasped with shock that a woman was leading this team. Uh, because they had never seen something like that. Uh, and so um, I think that 
you know, in itself sends a message to say we really value women's involvement. And not, not only that, but we, you know, we, women lead our project. And I think, you know, that then sort of everything flows from there, right? Uh, and so Solomon Island women were, were, were really engaged in that process. And then me on a, on a personal level, when I would spend time with people like, you know, Kathy or Randy or, 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 or Nelly, um, you know, you always have to, to, to do that in a patient and, and, and culturally sensitive way. Uh, and I'm really lucky that I'm, you know, part of a Pacific family. So I'm really familiar with the patience that's required with the, the um, you know, the, the way of, you know, not rushing anything. And, and then also sort of maybe we begin with just getting the guitar out and singing a couple songs and, and relaxing. And, you know, and that shows them that, you know, this is a we can talk as as people, as Pacific Islanders. I know what you mean. It certainly is a process, um, you know, overcoming that kind of inherent shyness within uh, Melanesian society. But I was really lucky to have some sort of fundamental sort of starting points that, that helped me out, but also just some incredible women that I worked with that, that really helped that process as well. In your heart of solo work, I never really felt your presence. I almost felt as if I was directly sitting across from Kathy or Randy and having them tell their stories. Was admitting your presence in intentional and what in general do you think the role of photography is in discussing climate change and adaptation schemes? Uh, the the work is called Heart for Solo, which is a, a funny sort of uh, construction because it's a real Solomon Island's way of saying it. Me got him, me got him hot for that. So you, me got him hot for you, Tess. Me got him hot for climate change. Me got him hot. So heart for something is a real way of uh, of expressing you know your love for something. Is me, me got him? Yeah, me got him is I have. Yeah, so. Me, me oh, got him hot nice. for solo uh, means like I've got a I've got love for Solomon Islands. Uh, oh, what a beautiful phrase! Yeah, it's funny because my work uh, as a UN photographer and as a communication specialist has has, has been on a journey as well. I, when I was in West Africa, I, I sort of uh, was some of the first people in uh, the in UNICEF or even in the UN to start to do uh, Facebook lives from uh, refugee camps in in Maiduguri and you know. I was in those videos where I would sort of like, you know, narrate and explain what we're doing here, what's going on in this camp, how many people are displaced and what the situation is, almost like a, a news reporter. Uh, and, you know, those were well received and I think really effective in, in what they were doing. But I wanted to, you know, with this work, especially uh, honor the people uh, in in the videos and in the photos and in the, the, the communities. And so uh, definitely right away, I, I stepped right back and, and I feel like it is my job just to sort of to be a witness, not to be part of the story. Of course, I'm part of the story in the way that I shape it, what I'm showing you, what songs I've chosen. There's a thousand ways that I am in the story. And what was really nice is when we shared the work in Melbourne, quite a number of people sort of pointed out that the, the, these portraits were huge, three meters uh, high, and the projections five meters wide, really large scale. And on each one of the photographs, actually, if you look closely, uh, some people could see me reflected in the eyes of the people. Uh, and so, you know, it, oh. yes, I'm not in the work in a, in a sort of over traditional sense. But uh, what was nice was friends and, and people who, who were close observers of the portraits did notice that, yeah, inherently, I'm inevitably in the in the work uh, in, 
in the reflections, the reflections. And, uh, and and I think that's right to do it in in that more subtle way. It's so important that Solomon Islanders are given a chance to sort of articulate their own concerns and are given a chance to speak in their own voice and are given a chance to share their culture, their music, their islands, the beauty uh, that exists in that country without some sort of UN voice saying, this is the Solomon Islands. It's a vulnerable, you know, community. You know, that is just a completely sort of colonial model of storytelling. And we need to, to move past that and kind of invite Solomon Islanders into telling their own stories. Uh, and so I was really lucky to work with a lot of young Solomon Islanders. Uh, we did a whole series of climate change documentary screenings. Uh, and I, I continued to sort of be in touch with, with friends there, young filmmakers, and, and mentoring them into just finding opportunities to share more stories by Solomon Islanders about Solomon Islanders. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, sorry to butt in. It's Mark here, founder of Climactic, and I just wanted to say that this week we don't have any messages for you from the Community Corner. Now, the Community Corner is an audio notice board we offer to the community to let groups or individuals share notices or events that are coming up that might be of interest to the community. You can find more information about how to send in an audio message at www.climactic.fm slash community corner. And it's really just as simple as sending in an audio message you record on your phone, either to our email address or to Facebook, and we'll play it for you here on the show for free. I also just wanted to quickly say that we're brought to you today by, well, nobody. Nobody that is, except for the amazing people who are part of the Climactic Collective, who give their time and effort to this for free, and to a couple friends of the show who support us on Pausable. Honestly, it means so much to us that they give just a couple bucks a month to help us pay for the costs of running this show. It's really vindicating that people are getting value out of it, and it does help us cover the expenses of running the show. So you can find a link to our Pausable in the show notes, and if you had the time to check it out, and could consider even a dollar a month to support Climactic, we greatly appreciate it. Thanks. And I'll let you get back to the show now, with Tess and Patrick. The perception, I mean, I'll just respond as well to your question around what the role of photography is in terms of uh, sort of representing these issues. I mean, these are really technical adaptation responses in some cases, and in the same way that, you know, the IPCC is called for more humanistic kind of storytelling. We've been so focused on making this kind of scientific argument, and, and I think we, it's, believe me, it's been made, uh, you know, in most parts of the world. It's only within sort of Australia and America that people are still sort of losing energy trying to convince skeptics, like, but it's clear that these are not people who are dealing with any sort of like rational information. The skeptics are dealing with, you know, they're completely corrupted by the sort of, you know, uh, fossil fuel industry. So I don't think any amount of scientific data is ever going to convince them. But we now need to move past that and move into a, a much more sort of emotional storytelling phase that I think really sort of presences this crisis that's engulfing our planet uh, and, and doing so uh, by sort of sharing the communities of people like Kathy or Nellie or Rendy. Uh, and you start to see what it actually looks like. And what you start to see is that it's not a like Hollywood movie where there's going to be a giant tidal wave that wipes out, you know, these islands. It's a slow drip 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 of the storm blowing the roof off and then they don't have money for Kathy to go to school and then Kathy's father you know gets lost in a storm and and you know like one 
one thing after another, after another, after another, adds up to people being held back and and then being unable to kind of cope with, with the changes. Focus on the people who are going to sort of be impacted, but don't present them as victims. Don't present as, you know, helpless. Show them uh, for the full complexity of the people that they are with rich cultures and ideas and concerns, just like us, you know, rather than sort of saying that they're, they're victims or they're warriors. Like I, I find those narratives maybe a little bit simplistic and, and I think uh, do a disservice to, to you know, the, the dialogue. Uh, but I think that photography, v- video representations, I think all that is critical to, you know, helping people feel uh, uh, the, the, the issues that these people are going through. And I try to, you know, use photography that works in a space kind of beyond words, right? So if you start to look at the, the combined impact of the, the 900 portraits that were in the show in Melbourne, you know, you can feel a story emerging there, uh, even though there's no uh, word being spoken. Uh, I think that the eyes, the faces can communicate far more than, than we even understand to sort of presence those 900 people that I photographed and to show them not as victims, not as warriors, uh, just as people. It's interesting instead of this one-dimensional report or a statistic or, as you said, warrior, that you'd put them into multimodal, multidimensional, and I couldn't find the word for it, and I realized it was human. You've like given it a face and a community, which you've made it quite accessible, which I think is really quite important. What do you find are the differences and advantages of doing this through storytelling as opposed to more, those more formal methods? Well, we need both, right? We need all sorts of different sort of communications materials to tell this story. And certainly you're going to need those technical reports. You're going to need the donor reports. You're going to need the kind of like information about how many pumps pump how much water and and what the kind of, you know, how many people are going to be impacted and what the kind of uh, cost effectiveness of, of the intervention was. That material... We can't do without that because that's going to not just keep the donors engaged and, and, and sort of unlock more funding for these kinds of projects because it shows that, that it's being used sensibly and, and effectively. That approach alone, which is pretty much what UNDP has, has, has largely done, focus on keeping the donor happy, let's get them this report, and, and that's all we have time for. I feel like that's really missing an opportunity here to celebrate these communities and the, the wisdom in these communities, the people in these communities, the solutions in these communities. And so, you know, as I said, one of the other parts of the project was to go into each community, not just ask for who's already leading on climate change in your community, but who has a solution uh, that is, you know, uh, helping people cope with water shortages or climate change in general. And so I also developed a whole series of instructional videos. So, you know, UNDP puts an emphasis on this already saying, oh, we need to develop knowledge sharing material. And that sounds great. But the reality is, where is it all going? And what is this knowledge sharing material? Who's actually making sure it's it's accessible and useful and engaging? Uh, the reality is nobody. It's kind of just going into these kind of repositories and, and sitting there. And so what I wanted to do was make videos that actually would teach you how to make a water pump uh, out of pieces of you know pipe that you might find at the at the the hardware store, or how to make a handbag woven out of uh, plastic rubbish that you might find on the street. And these were communities uh, like Gizo or like uh, even in Honiara, where I met people who were doing these things, and then just made videos about that process so that anybody who has access to the video or a PDF 
anywhere can get them and, and figure out how to do it. And I think that's the kind of shift in thinking that's required. Instead of thinking about what does the donor want, uh, what does the community need, or what, will, what does this community have that another community would benefit from? We're so obsessed with keeping the donors happy that it becomes this kind of tyranny of just producing content for a donor and, you know, whatever it is, the, the Swedish government, the German government, the French government says, oh, tick, we've got that communication package. But what would be more effective is if we use those resources of sending photographers there and developing material to, you know, help us arrive at a deeper understanding of the the humanity of what climate change means right now. And with um, the distribution of that knowledge sharing, did you find a lot of the communities in the Solomons had internet? And was there another way that you could provide that knowledge sharing um, if they didn't? Well, Solomon Islands, unfortunately, is deeply hampered by its lack of internet. It's some of the worst internet I've ever experienced in the, the last 10 years. Uh, and and I work in West Africa and uh, in places all around the world with, with where you wouldn't expect uh, better internet than Solomon's. But yeah, it's really holding the country back. And so, you know, the idea of just saying, oh, well, chuck it up on YouTube and everyone will find it is not good enough. Uh, and so what was really great was developing relationships with the provincial officers from the Ministry of Agriculture or the Ministry of Water and Sanitation. There was also Minister of Culture. So I got to really, just through my travels, develop personal relationships. And in every place I went, I would share what I'm working on. And sometimes they would say, oh, give me that on a USB stick or give me that on a micro SD. And so (laughs) there are really inventive ways. Solomon Islanders have, you know, this platform called Share It, which allows you to just Bluetooth one file to another. And so, you know, people have smartphones. Um, it's just that they don't have internet. So, you know, the capacity to just b- sh- sort of start to sort of virally distribute this material has been a, a really wonderful bonus to the project. So these provincial officers took the material, actually specifically requested it, and have been writing me, asking for it over, over Facebook and so on. So it's a really interesting way when you s- sort of move away from the formal channels of say, okay, well, we'll let UNDP roll this out. Um, the rollout was really sort of informal through uh, the, the contacts that I made. But if, uh, people can contact me or contact Climactic and we can find ways to share this material you know, more widely because I think not just this, but I, I would love to start to see uh, a much more comprehensive database of you know, climate solutions that are coming from the communities. Absolutely, that's an incredible idea. I also think that sounds like a much more personal way to distribute the uh, information while you're in the Solomons. And I would recommend any listeners to definitely watch the How to Weave a Handbag Out of Plastic because I'm probably going to try it this weekend. I'll let you know how it goes. It's amazing. It's amazing. So there's been quite a lot of uh, publicity uh, since I made that video uh, for Rendy and the Plastic Wise Collective, uh, which is this women's collective in Gizo. And they've, you know, a group of 50 women have got together and basically used traditional Melanesian weaving patterns in order to sort of like uh, take garbage out of their community and weave it into beautiful things, uh, handbags and things. So it's time consuming, but it's also a really fun thing to do with your family or your friends. And it's social. Of course, you're you're saving all of that rubbish from going into the sea or into landfill. Yeah. And repurposing it into something you can actually use like a bag, which is fantastic. 
Uh, speaking a while ago, back when you were saying these increase of storms can mean that Kathy loses a roof, which means that they can't afford to go to school. How did you find in the Solomons uh, life was closer to nature or less isolated from it? And um, while you were personally there, did that make you feel more vulnerable to nature and the ways that we've changed nature? Yeah, Solomon Islands, you feel very close to nature. It's, uh, you know, um, you you have this, the sea is, is, is sort of this always present and uh, the storms that come off of the sea, you feel in a much more sort of real way. The architecture of the houses, even if they're kind of uh, sort of quote-unquote modern uh, houses built out of timber, uh, they're still extremely vulnerable to these storms. Uh, the roofs can be blown off and so on. Um, you know, and in many of the communities I went to, like in Tuo, uh, out on the reef islands, you know, you're still dealing with uh, entirely houses that are built in the traditional manner with leaf huts and, and woven uh, just sort of sand or dirt floor. Uh, so, you know, 100% you're, you're, you're much closer to nature. And uh, there were times when I was pinned down for two weeks at a time because uh, rainstorms just kept on coming and, and you know, uh, we maybe couldn't get off the island because there was too many, the waves were too big and we couldn't make it to the airfield. Or when we got to the airfield, the planes couldn't land because the runway had been flooded. So in places like the Solomon Islands, nature is not something that we can bend to our will uh, like we can in Australia and sort of say, well, the plane's going to land at 725, so we're going to land at 725 you know uh it just doesn't work like that and and it drives some people crazy i've seen australians go there and sort of say ah, oh, nothing's on time it's like well no because of the storm and no because you know the because the you know the 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 rain or because of you know the wind there's things that that still sort of like inhibit you know the, the 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 functional like you know efficiency of a system, and I think that there's something you know uh, certainly frustrating about that, but also really admirable about that that they haven't completely abandoned that sort of connection to nature. That nature still plays a part in the rhythm of their daily lives, and and I feel like that's something that we all can sort of you know um, use more of in our lives. Definitely, um, especially in Australia, I get the feeling that this interconnectivity with climate change, with um, all these other aspects which the Solomons have to deal with, such as logging and food scarcity, and I think you mentioned uh, resource theft at one point, mm. um, is something that we've had to like learn, like it's not intuitive, whereas in the Solomons, this interconnectivity is seemingly ingrained. Uh, do you think this is because they do live closer and nature is more ingrained in their culture? Yeah, I mean, one of the beautiful parts of the, the show in Melbourne was, you know, Heart for Solo is, is fundamentally an invitation to collaborate. It's not just me sharing my work. Uh, it's really about inviting the public in to kind of experience it and be part of it and through the shadow play of the installation. But also Solomon Islanders coming and performing poetry readings in the space or singing songs in the space. Uh, and really that's that's the real heart for of the piece um, and so there was an incredible poet named Hunhak who came uh, while we were in Melbourne and read a piece all about the issues you referenced which is uh, racism and, and resource theft uh, and you know there's no other way to describe it is that uh, you know these are logging and mining companies that come and, and basically sort of intimidate and bully and bribe uh, illiterate sort of tribal leaders into signing away their land there's this sort of collision between the materialism of the kind of Western resource extraction philosophy of, well, it's just dirt. Uh, we're just here to take the dirt because we can sell it and make aluminium from it uh, versus, you know, this kind of indigenous perspective, which says 
This is where our ancestors are buried. This is the forest that has nourished us for generations. You can't just say this is just dirt. Uh, and I feel like, you know, that, um, that sort of collision is, is having really, you know, negative consequences, especially as you start to get unchecked economic forces like Chinese logging and mining companies coming in. And, you know, let's be honest, the Chinese are the only the kind of latest wave. American and Australian resource companies have been there for decades and have stripped the forest already down to the, the, the very last. So uh, this is uh, not a, a simple thing to sort of uh, practice some sort of uh, China bashing. This is uh, the entire model of, of Western consumer capitalism is based on exploiting uh, these resources and, you know, doing doing whatever is necessary to outsmart or, or, or you know, exploit the people who are, who are owning those resources. Do the Solomons at all have any capacity to police this kind of resource theft or...? Unfortunately not. The government is extremely uh, sort of limited in, in its capacity in, in a lot of different ways. There's over a thousand different islands spread over a, a vast, vast area. And just even the logistics of getting from one island to the next requires a whole bunch of different things. The logging and mining companies have learned pretty clearly uh, that, that there's no one watching the store. So take as much as you want as quickly as you can. Ugh. That's terrible. The Solomon Islands have lost five islands to rising sea levels. Did you see much evidence of these rising sea levels while you're in the Solomons? Absolutely. Everywhere you go uh, across the Pacific, but especially the Solomon Islands, you can see, you know, uh, where the trees have been planted and now the sea has kind of subsumed them uh, and, and they have kind of the trees have fallen into the sea. There's evidence of erosion. There's evidence of, of houses that have been sort of eaten by the, the tides. Uh, this is happening everywhere. There's, uh, I was on, as I said, that island called Kwai, which is, you know, off the east coast of Malaita. It's just this kind of sand island with a, a high population. Um, and so in those kind of areas you can start to see more clearly where houses were and where they no longer are because the sea has taken them and this island is literally melting like a sugar cube in the sea this is happening uh, all the time everywhere across the Solomon Islands and and you know there's no mechanism to sort of say oh I need a, a grant to relocate or uh, it, what happens is people sort of you know move their house for the fourth time at their own expense and the expense of their their extended family before they finally say okay Okay, uh, Kathy, that's it. We can't afford for you to go to school. You got to go to Honeyara and get a job. Uh, and she's 16, you know, and so she gets a job working in uh, a shop or a hotel or something. Uh, but you know, that's the that's what climate refugees looks like or climate migrants looks like. It's not this sort of dramatic image that we saw from Syria of like you know lines and lines of people sort of knocking on the gates of Europe. It's one by one kids dropping out of school, kids moving to the city, people having to drive taxis instead of go fishing. And, you know, that's what climate migration looks like. Here in Australia, the topic of environmental justice is just beginning to gain traction. From your perspectives and time in the Solomons, do you think that conversation is anywhere close to accurate to describing the actual inequity Environmental justice, climate justice, this is, I think, a critical lens for, for, for this um, climate change discussion. And I'm so pleased to see it sort of breaking through onto the, the posters of the climate strike and, and into the kind of like policy discourse within uh, climate change uh, development policy. But, uh, you know, there is a very deep understanding uh, that, that this is not 
okay, that this is a great injustice that's being carried out, that, you know, these islands that have never had cars in some cases, that have, you know, barely had, you know, a generator or, or even sort of some kids have never seen, you know, uh, <laughs> apart from the boat that, that, that goes to and fro, like, you know, engines that, that burn fuel. There's not sort of like communities that have, have contributed to, to climate change, um, but they are suffering the most immediate and the most severe impacts. And so, so, you know, yeah, I don't know what legal mechanisms we have as a world community. I don't know if the United Nations is even that framework to do so. Uh, but I think that we as individuals and we as, as countries and within our sort of politics have to press our leaders for this kind of lens to recognize that, yes, help Australia, you know, but help the, the people that Australia has impacted and has put into this situation. And I'm just... Like every time I visit Australia, just so heartbroken to see how far away from from you know the mainstream of that discourse uh, is you know where where you continue to elect leaders who 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 are not taking this seriously, let alone engaging in a kind of a sense of of responsibility and atonement and um, yeah, I, I just feel so frustrated by the broken systems uh, politically, both in America and in, and in Australia and, and in dozens of other countries that, um, you know, we can talk about climate justice. We can talk about environmental justice. Uh, and definitely people in Solomon Islands are aware of this injustice. Uh, but, you know, we have to presence that, um, you know, and pressure our, our, our political leaders to, to deliver it fantastic like you really have given a face to this climate change made it just so much more accessible for us in Australia to see what the effects of climate change are happening currently right now in the Solomons. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it really represents, uh, I think, a new way of working in in uh, climate change storytelling uh, and, and a collaborative one. And I think, you know, if I could extend the invitation to your listeners, maybe there's people out there who are interested in filmmaking who are experienced filmmakers. Look, let's, let's all work together. There's a, a, a whole new model of people doing this kind of thing. And that's what happened to me in Solomon Island. Uh, this uh, filmmaker Yara Lee she's an incredible woman uh, she's Korean Brazilian background uh, and she invested some of her money in renewable energy about 15-20 years ago and what it's done is it's done so well that she is basically able to live her dream she goes around the world making films about you know uh, cultural resistance movements to colonial oppression and climate change and so on she doesn't have a fixed home base she has you know a team of assistants in New York who help her enroll in festivals and do all the planning and so on. So she was invited to screen her work, one of uh, a, a piece from Burkina Faso at the Melanesian Arts Festival. And she turned up and started saying, hey, look, I really want to do a piece about uh, climate change here in Solomon Islands. Who should I speak to? And, you know, before long, somebody said, oh, you've got to speak to Patrick. Uh, and so we really hit it off. And, and of course, she, she sort of interviews me in, in the documentary. But the film is a real celebration of, of Melanesian culture. Uh, and so she started to work with young Melanesian filmmakers, working with their footage and, uh, you know, not just looking at this as a one dimensional issue. As we said before, it's not as simple as saying, oh, you know, um, the Melanesians are victims or they're warriors. Like we're much, much more complex people than that. And, and I think that the film which is just a pilot, really. It's a 20 minute sort of uh, 
of like piece that, that really sort of synthesizes some of the key themes that she'd like to explore. And so again, this is the invitation. I can connect you to Yara Lee and Cultures of Resistance uh, films uh, who are out there doing work about Western Sahara, about, uh, you know, displaced uh, indigenous people all around the world. She's looking to kind of make a much deeper version of this film that's going to take us into the complexities of climate change here in the Pacific. But one of the things that um, that, that inevitably starts to come through in the piece is the, the festering wound uh, that is the oppression of West Papua by uh, the Indonesian government uh, and this kind of, you know, neo-colonial brutality that's existing uh, and has existed for more than 70 years against the Melanesian people, as naked as you get in terms of racist resource theft. I think that the film does a great job of highlighting that and maybe uh, illuminating some people uh, for people who, who don't know enough about it, uh, which was certainly the case. We had a, a number of students from Monash University come and RMIT, and they were saying, you know, these are educated Australians, some of them even sort of uh, connected to Melanesian communities. They said, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't, I had never seen that kind of stuff before. You know, we have to recognize, especially even within the climate change discussion, that the media has a continued vested interest in, you know, repressing information that's going to suit the kind of political and economic uh, framework that we live in. Uh, and, you know, we are not going to get stories about the Pacific uh, in the Australian mainstream media. We are not going to get stories about Indonesia's oppression in uh, Australian mainstream media. So we need to seek it out and we need to support filmmakers who are, who are doing this kind of courageous work. So if you want to sort of like chip away at this kind of uh, the systems of oppression, uh, you need to do that in ways that are, is going to circumvent, you know, the systems of economic power. Uh, that's the big sort of studios and the big festivals and the big money distribution. It has to be a person to person, you know, a community hall to community hall spreading the word about what's happening. On that note, I also would like to give a big thanks to Climactic and Mark Spencer, and especially you, the listeners, and especially you as well, Patrick. Really appreciate your experience on the Solomons and the Pacific. We'll probably have you back here talking more about the Pacific at some point. Something to listen out to. (laughs) Thank you very much, Tess, and thank you to all the listeners of Climactic. I think it's really important that we, we start to build these communities. Definitely. With that, have a good day, everyone. Bye. Thank you to Tess, new member of the Climactic Collective, for this remarkable interview. Thank you to Patrick for your generosity with your time and your stories of your experiences in the Solomons. Bringing you this episode really is a dream come true for me. Right from the start of Climactic, I've wanted to bring more stories from the South Pacific region to the Australian climate community. And if you've got any ideas on stories we can shed a light on, voices we can help raise, please just get in touch at hello at climactic.fm. And Patrick has left me with a special request. He wanted to make sure you knew that Yara Lee's film, Wan Talks, is well worth checking out. And you can find a link to it in the show notes right now. But with that, I'll leave you to your day. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again soon.
The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio.